I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. When we left off Genesis the last time we were there, uh, we finished to the end of chapter 13. And if you remember, Lot and Abram had separated. Lot had gone and settled near to Sodom. While Abraham, by command of the Lord, continued to sojourn through the land of Canaan before eventually settling by the Oaks of Mamre, they are called, uh, which were near the city of Hebron. And then an unknown amount of time passes by, and then we get the events of chapter 14. So let's read. We're going to read all the way through 14, and then we will uh, work through it. So let's read it together first. Genesis 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevet, Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as Al-Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. We have in this chapter a very unique and fascinating account in the life of Abram. There is here international intrigue. There is a nighttime military raid to rescue his family members and hostages. There's then this mysterious priest king who comes out of nowhere and blesses Abram. And then we have also this evil king who attempts to bless Abram but is rejected by Abram. So it's not surprising that this account is preserved for us just because it's fascinating and interesting. But there is also more here than merely a captivating story. This chapter reveals the Lord's commitment to Abram and to keeping his promises. He has promised to bless Abram and to make his name great. And he is keeping that promise to Abram. So this reveals God's commitment to Abram and his word to keep his word. And it also reveals Abram's concern for the Lord's honor and for the Lord's name. And so for all of the uniqueness here of this story, there's not much else like it. Uh, For all the uniqueness to this story being about Abraham and about what went on with him and his family, we are reminded also of more general truth that God is truly committed to his people and his promises while his people are concerned with the worship and honor of their God. This is what we want to look at today as we consider chapter 14. Now the first half of this, that God is committed to his people and to his promises, this is a rock-solid reality. This is something that cannot change because it is rooted in the very person of God and his character. Uh, He has to be faithful to what he proclaims because that's just who he is. He is God. He is not like man. He doesn't change. He doesn't promise one thing but then not fulfill it. And so that is not open to debate or change. God has always been committed to his people and to his word and he always will be. And there is continual comfort in this then for God's people, whether it's in the time of Abram or whether it's today. Our faith finds anchor here to God and to his faithfulness. But the second half of what I want to look at, the fact that God's people are concerned for the worship, the pure worship and honor of God, this part is not quite so perfectly done. Man is, of course, man. We are sinful. Man is fickle. And so this is not a perfect concern that we see in the Lord's people with all things concerning the Lord and his worship and purity. We've seen even in the life of Abram, when he went down to Egypt, rather glaring and clear sin, 
If you recall that story when he was lying about his wife, not being his wife, but just his sister, and then allowing Pharaoh to take her and so on before eventually the Lord sent plagues upon Pharaoh and he gave her back and chastised Abram for lying to him. We've seen rather serious and grievous sin in the life of Abram. But it is also true that Abram did believe in the Lord, that he did repent of that and go on to trust the Lord and live to the Lord and to be concerned about the things of the Lord. And we see in this text today that he was very much concerned with the Lord's honor and purity. And these things ought to also be the concern of his people today. It ought to be our concern as well. And so this is what we want to look at as we go through this chapter. God's commitment to his people and to his promises and then the commitment of his people, the concern of his people with the worship and honor of God. So let's begin with the first part, that God is truly committed to his people and promises. The first 12 verses of this chapter are basically setting the scene for us. Uh, This conflict of all of these different kings into which Abram is eventually drawn. Uh, But before we can get to Abram and his entering into it, let's just try to grasp uh, the situation and and what was going on. So in verse 1, Let's read that again. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. So this introduces us here to to nine different kings. There's four kings who come from the east, and they are coming towards the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, you might know it as. And and, and there are five kings who are in that region around the Salt Sea. So verse 1 tells us about the four who come from the east that are allied together. And they're all, to the best of our understanding, from the, the region around what would be Babylon. So Shinar is called, is later known as Babylon, called Babylon. If you remember back from chapter 11, it was in the plain of Shinar where the Tower of Babel was built. And Babel being the same word from which we get Babylon. And so you have a king here from Shinar that is from Babylon. Uh, then we have uh, another king whose kingdom is over Elisar. And Elisar, we're not entirely sure where that, that was. Uh, located, though it's believed likely to be in that Babylonia region. Uh, similarly, it's not entirely certain where Goyim is. It mentions title king of Goyim. Now that word Goyim is the Hebrew word for nations. It's just translated into English as Goyim. It's the word for nations or it's the word we also know for Gentiles as well. Um, so it's, it's possible there was a place called Goyim and this title is king of that place. Or maybe he was the king over a few different uh, nations, a few different kingdoms. And so he gets the name king of nations. In fact, King James Version translates this as king of nations. So we're not entirely sure what his realm was. But then we also have this man, Keterlaomer. And he would appear to be, from the way the story continues, to be maybe the the top king or the leading king uh, in this group, in this uh, confederate of kings from the east. 
And his kingdom was Elam. And this is a region that uh, there is, are some things that are known about this region. It existed uh, in the, just, just north of the Persian Gulf. So this would be east of Babylon in what is now southwestern Iran. Uh, this kingdom would eventually be swallowed up under the Persian Empire uh, later on. But it did have uh, ups and downs in terms of this kingdom's significance before it was eventually swallowed up by the Persians. So these are the four kings, all from that eastern region, somewhere around Babylon. And they come down, and there is these other, this other group of kings, and there's five of them. And they are all from this region south of the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea. These are also known, these cities, as the cities of the plain. And these are the cities that will, in chapter 19, be overthrown by God. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah that's destroyed, but it's the cities of the plain. And the only city here that would be spared is this city called Bela or Zoar. We've seen that Bela was maybe the older name of it. That is the city that Lot asked if he could flee to that place and stay there. And so uh, that, that city would be spared. So we, we might note here that these kingdoms are relatively small kingdoms. These are not massive empires. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah and these other three cities are all in this one relatively small geographic region. So these are what might be known as city-states. These are all cities, but they have their own kings and their own domains over them. And so it's easy to see why these five kings in this one geographical region might have common cause and mutual interest against these four kings who evidently were superior and from uh, further away. So we're told here in verses 1 to 3 who these kings are and that four of these kings had come down and the five kings from these cities of the plain met, went out to meet them in the valley of Sidon. But then verse 4 kind of backs up and tells us a little bit of the history and, and how it got to this point. So let's look at that. It says, uh, verse 4, 12 years they had served Keterlamer. So that's the five kings of the cities of the plain. For 12 years, they were under his, his thumb. And I think this also is where we see Keterlamer stands out amongst those other four kings. So 12 years, they had served Keterlamer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Keterlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevek Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So these four kings have come west. And then they have come south, and they have come just on the east side of the Jordan River. If you can picture maybe one of the maps in the back of your Bible. They've come on the east side of the Jordan River, and they have come down pillaging on their way. They've even defeated such formidable foes as the Rephaim, we are told. And if you remember, if you jump ahead to when Moses and the Israelites would come up that side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, they would fight a king named Og, who is king of Bashan, it says. And he was the last of the Rephaim, we are told there. Um, so that's the same general region, except these kings are all coming south. And they are fighting and they are winning along the way. 
And as they come south, you'd imagine they'd eventually come to the Dead Sea, but they, they bypass these kings of these cities of the plains, and they continue south down to this Al Paran, before then looping back up to Kadesh. Kadesh, you might recognize that, again, from later in your Bible. That's at the southern end of Canaan. And then they go to another place there, Hazazon, Tamar, where there were Amalekites and Amorites living, and they conquer them. And then they end up coming back towards the Dead Sea, where they meet up with these other five kings and have it out here. And so that's what we come to now in verse 8. It says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Keterlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the four kings soundly defeat the five kings over the cities of the plain. And as these kings are fleeing, we're told here that they fell into these bitumen pits. Now, bitumen is a thick and sticky form of uh, petroleum. It can also come as a solid, but it is clearly the sticky type here being referred to. Uh, This uh, viscous form is uh, used in asphalt even today. And this is clearly what was bogging these kings down as they were fleeing, and their men as well. Some of them escaped the pits and they flee to the hill country in order to try and hide in the relative safety of it. Uh, you, you might be interested to know that the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, would later become known to the Greeks as the Asphaltus Sea because of this bitumen, because of the, there are large chunks of it even floating in the sea. So bottom line here, these five kings come out to fight against these four and the five are routed and they flee. Some of them get stuck in these pits. They are soundly defeated. And so we read in verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So this is now where it begins to become Abram's concern. Uh, Wicked kings battling against other pagan kings uh, would be fairly common, a common reality in that day. But among the spoils taken this time by Keterlamer is Lot, Lot and his family who are dwelling in Sodom. So likely without having any idea Uh, There's a sense in which Keterlamer here has indeed messed with the wrong man. And so in verse 13, we are told, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So a survivor comes and lets Abram know what has happened. Abram is still living where he was at the end of chapter 13 by the Oaks of Mamre, this notable location. This is a place where, again, at the end of chapter 13, he had built an altar there. Again, we're told it's near Hebron. This would be south of Jerusalem, or Salem, as it is called in chapter 14. And we're also told here that this man, Mamre, and his brothers were allies with Abram. So this is their land 
We're told that they were Amorite men and they were allies with him. So already we are seeing, even in this reference to allies, God's blessing of Abram. He has been able to settle down in this area. He has lived there for however long. And he has found the favor of these men who evidently own this property. This is their land. Such that he is able to be there, even with all the the, the numbers of people that would be in his household. He's going to mention 318 men who were born in his household and trained for war. There's however many more people there were that were part of his household. They're able to live here. Uh, They're welcomed by these men. And... Also, he was able to build an altar and freely worship his God without being harassed by these men. And so they have entered into some kind of a friendly alliance here. And these men will actually go with Abram to try to get Lot back. Uh, That's not immediately obvious, but in the very last verse, uh, verse 24, um, Abram wants Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre to take their share of the spoils. So they, they have gone with him to get Lot back. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So the four kings, after defeating the five kings in the valley of Sidon, they continue back north, only this time they're on the west side of the Jordan River, And they likely would have passed almost right by where Abram was living. And then this man shows up and tells Abram what had gone on. And so Abram tracked these kings northward and pursued them, we're told, as far as Dan, which would be in the northern part of Canaan. And there, we're told, he attacked and he won the day. And as we consider this, we have these four kings who have been pillaging everywhere they go against formidable foes. And we're told that Abram takes 318 men, divides them and attacks them and wins and even pursues them just north of Damascus. And of course, some might just say that's impossible or say that seems entirely unreasonable. But there are a number of things to consider. Uh, First... Uh, We are told he had allies here and that some of these men went with him. So the overall force was likely more than 318 men. Second, it's possible that they attack not the entire force of these four kings, but perhaps a rear guard that was tasked with carrying off the spoil and the people. Maybe not all of the soldiers that were with the four kings. Although, having said that, in chapter in Hebrews, which we read earlier, it does kind of make it sound like he defeated them all. So that may or may not be that this is just a rear guard. But third, also, he does attack at night, we're told, in a carefully planned ambush. And if you've studied any military history at all, you know that just having a superior force doesn't always mean that you win a battle. Superior tactics and all kinds of other factors can come into it. But fourthly, and most significantly, as one commentator asks, he says, were Abram's unseen resources 
inferior to Gideon's. That is, God is fighting for Abram, clearly. Even if it was 318 men against thousands that represented these four kings, God could easily have delighted to give Abram the victory, even as he did with Gideon and his 300 men. This victory is a display, again, of God's commitment to his people and to his promises. He is making Abram great, as he said he would. Abram has become here in chapter 14 a rather formidable foe and a rather significant ally. He's a significant, we might say, tribal leader, perhaps. Uh, He's not technically a king, but he's a significant man on the world stage even here with international interest. Further, we see that God is blessing those who bless him while he's cursing those who curse him. Lot is Abram's family. He is his nephew by blood, and he, is, he keeps referring to him as his brother. He's a spiritual brother. We know that Lot, as we saw in chapter 13, though acting foolishly in his choice of where to live, nevertheless, we're told in the New Testament, he was a righteous man. He did share Abram's faith. And those who attack Abram's kin are then defeated before Abram. And this is ultimately the Lord's doing in protection of his people, of Abram and of Lot. God is keeping his word here. And all of this is confirmed by what happens next. So let's continue in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So as Abram starts venturing back southward toward the Oaks of Mamre, two kings come out to meet him. The first, we're told here, is the king of Sodom. He has evidently caught wind of what Abram has done. And he heads out to meet him in what is called the King's Valley, which is probably the Kidron Valley, if you're familiar with that, uh, just to the east of Jerusalem. Or maybe the Valley of Hinnom, also right there near Jerusalem. Uh, But before the story picks up the exchange between this King of Sodom and Abram, uh, first enter Melchizedek, uh, this mysterious figure who uh, is, is mentioned in a number of places in Scripture, appears on the scene. It is, he's mysterious not just because of what is said here in Genesis 14, although this does raise questions about this man. How, what, how did he know to be a priest? What exactly did that entail? Uh, how did he know to do that, that God would be pleased? Where did he come from? We don't know anything else really about him here. But also we find more that is said about him in other places, like in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, some of which we read earlier. And some of those things, we're going to come back next week and deal with some of those questions and try to look at how the rest of the Bible picks up on the significance of Melchizedek and the connection to Christ that maybe isn't immediately obvious to us. So we'll, we'll come back. Uh, and, and hopefully make some sense of that next Sunday. 
But Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Uh, that's just what the two Hebrew words combined, king, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. We're told that he ruled in Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. Uh, it, is, it is typically called Jerusalem later on, but even in Psalm 76, verse 2, we see it called Salem there as well. We're told that he was not only the king of Salem, but he was also priest of God Most High. That is to say, he is the priest of the one true God. The God who has called Abram and blessed Abram and promised to bring about the Messiah through Abram's line. This is the same God that this Melchizedek is priest of. In verse 22, Abram will very clearly identify God Most High as being Yahweh, or being the Lord, as it says. And so this priest king comes out from Salem to meet Abram, and he comes, interestingly enough, bringing nourishment in the form of bread and wine. And he goes on then to pronounce a blessing. In verse 19, he says, And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here is this priest king who comes, again, seemingly out of nowhere, to offer his blessing upon Abram. God Most High is the source, ultimately, of this blessing. May Abram be blessed by God Most High, he says. And God is described as the possessor, or perhaps maybe better, the creator of heaven and earth. And Melchizedek also blesses God for delivering Abram's enemies into his hands. So he praises the Lord. He blesses Abram. He recognizes that God Almighty, the creator and therefore the owner of everything, is the one who has given Abram the victory. That is the interpretation of what has gone on. Abram has gone out with his men and God has given his enemies into his hand. This is the explanation of the events that we've read. God is blessing his servant and he is keeping his word his promise to do that. And this is confirmed here by Melchizedek, this priest of God. So God is committed to his people and to his promises. The promises that God had made to Abram are many and they're varied. He promised to make Abram, give Abram a great name. He promised as many offspring as the sand on the seashore would come from his line, that he'd be made into nations and that one particular nation that would come from him would dwell in this land of Canaan that he was also promising to give to him. And of course, the promise ultimately of the Messiah, that this offspring of the woman who would come and, 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 and fix all that's gone wrong in Adam's sin, that would overturn this curse and defeat Satan, ultimately would come through this nation who would dwell in this land. This individual would be one to come from Abram's offspring. God made these promises to Abram, but he did not bring them to pass all at once with a snap of the finger, so to speak. Rather, Abram was made to wait upon the Lord. He was made to trust the Lord. 
that the Lord would indeed keep those promises. And Abram didn't even see all of these things fulfilled in his own day and with his own eyes. But God, nevertheless, did still show himself faithful to Abram and throughout Abram's life. He gave evidence that God was indeed committed to Abram and to the promise that he had made to Abram. So even though he didn't see everything fulfilled, he still did see God act faithfully and God give enough to Abram to show him he is worthy to be trusted, that he will indeed keep all that he has said he will do. And in many ways, this is a paradigm of how it goes for all of God's people throughout time who trust in Him. We are those who believe our God, believe in Him, and believe in what He says, believe what He has promised. But we don't see and receive everything right away in its fullness. The promise of the Messiah that God had made to Abram was fulfilled as Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are offspring of Abram, heirs according to promise. You believe the same promise of Abram, even though you are on this side of that offspring having come. God was committed to keep his word, to send the Lord Jesus Christ Though many years passed between that promise being made, whether we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, or whether we look at the promise specifically as made to Abram. But he is faithful, and he has sent Christ. And even now, as we look backwards on the fact that Christ has come, And we can see how it is that God has fulfilled that promise to Abram to send Christ through the people of Israel who would descend from Abram. Even as we have received by faith salvation, forgiveness of our sins, even as we are justified even now by faith that this is sure and certain thing that we have, Even as Jesus has finished his work on the cross, that sins are fully and forever dealt with because of what he has done in offering himself. There are nevertheless promises that we yet await. Even that promise, we possess it now, but we can't really touch it or see it. We're believing that this is true. That the God who made promises and was faithful to Abram and to all of his people in the Old Testament remains faithful even now. And that if he promises, he will save all who place their faith in Christ. We trust he will keep that too. But even as we are trusting in Christ today, we are still awaiting the final fulfillment of all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. There are things that are not yet in our possession, so to speak, that are being kept for us, the Bible says, that we are awaiting. There are still things for Christ to do. Salvation is secured and accomplished, but he is yet to return. He will return one day, and he will have all of his enemies at that time placed under his feet. 
He will bring about judgment. And he will bring about ultimately the new creation. Where all those for whom he has died will dwell with him forever. We sojourn now awaiting the fulfillment of those promises to us. The new creation. And so you should take care, courage, that the God who was faithful to keep his word to Abram remains faithful to keep all of his promises and all of his purposes, including those which you are waiting for now. This is our hope, that God is the same. And just as God showed up on the side of Abram to deliver him, to deliver his enemies into his hand in Genesis 14. We must also take courage in the fact that God always remains on the side of his redeemed today. Even those of us who are much, much less figures than Abraham. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says to the church. Now in Genesis 14, we see a relatively dramatic Example of God's faithfulness to Abram. And it's not always that obvious to us. Sometimes it can seem like God has forsaken us. We see this evidence throughout Scripture as well. Even David understood this and wrote about it. We see it throughout the Psalms. Those who had this experience, it was as if God had turned his face away. And yet, the truth remains that God does not abandon his people. And we also see that attested to in the Psalms as well. He does not abandon his people, nor does he let his promises fall to the ground. And so we stand here, we bank on this. Regardless of what circumstances look like right now, or how enemies may taunt you. And one of the promises that we have One of the great promises that we have if we are trusting in Christ is our sanctification. That God is making us more holy and will bring it to completion one day. And this is one of those promises that often feels so, so long in coming. So slow. So far from completion. But we read over and over again in the New Testament that God will bring that work to completion. That we will one day stand before God completed. That our Lord will do this for us. And so let us renew our hope and our boast and our joy in this. That God is committed to his people and to his promises. And it cannot be otherwise. Let's continue to the second point. We'll move relatively quickly through this one, but... We have God being truly committed to his people and promises. And then secondly, God's people are to be concerned with the worship and honor of our God. This is the appropriate response of God's grace toward us. We are guilty sinners before God. God saves us by his grace. If we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, he saves us by his grace. And we respond then with grateful worship to God. And seeking him. We live to him. Abram's concern in this chapter is not to make a name for himself. 
It's not his own renown. He's not out for battlefield glory. Nor is he out to try to make these four kings his subjects and become a major empire on his own and try to claim this for himself. Rather, he enters into the picture to rescue Lot, his brother, his spiritual brother from these tyrants. And he returns with the spoils to be blessed then by Melchizedek. And his response to this priest king coming out to bless him in verse 20 is to give him a tenth of everything. Hebrews 7.4 clarifies it was the tenth of the spoils. Later on, under the old covenant, the tithe, which is a tenth, will become an important part of Israelite worship and of temple worship. It would be brought, the tithe would, to the Lord at the temple, and it would be a way of helping to provide for the temple and for the priests and the Levites who worked there and who served the Lord there. So it's a, an act of worship to the Lord, and it also provided for the Levites and the priests. But before all of that, we have here Abram giving a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. No doubt as a thank offering to God who has given his enemies into his hand and as a recognition and an honoring of Melchizedek's priesthood, understanding it to be legitimate, to be genuine. So God has blessed Abraham and he then responds here with worship by giving to God's priest. But Abram's concern about the things of the Lord is then further shown in his exchange with the king of Sodom. Abram is not merely concerned with a ritualistic act of giving a tenth of this. First of all, there was no command for him to do so. It was a voluntary gift he did from a grateful heart. But we see his concern further shown here. His concern for the honor and the renown of God and what follows. And so let's read verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So the, the king of Sodom is a wicked man. We've already been told this in Genesis 13, verse 13. We're told that the men of Sodom were wicked men, great sinners before the Lord. They were renowned for their evil. And this here is their leader in all of this, their king. And he tries to come out and bless Abram, who's returning with this king of Sodom's possessions and with his people. He wants Abram to take all of the goods and only just return the people to himself. But Abram had already resolved by oath to the Lord. He's lifted up his hand to God most high, not to take anything that was Sodom's, not even a thread, he says, so that that wicked king will have no grounds to boast that he is the one who has made Abram rich. Abram wants no part in that, no confusion about their differences. Abram is not looking to become a wealthy rival king 
through getting padded by whatever means necessary or by wicked men. And there's no doubt temptation here. There would be temptation to receive all these goods and to receive this wealth from this king. We might think, well, Abram was already a wealthy man, and so it would be easy for him to just, you know, not receive further wealth. But if you think that way, it's because you don't understand the nature of that temptation that wealth brings. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4, I think it's verse 8, says that uh, the, the eyes of man are not satisfied with riches. There's always more to have. There's always more power to gain. And there could easily be a temptation. He has just had a tremendous victory over four kings who have steamrolled everybody else in this whole region around. And Abram leads this war party who actually has victory. And now he could have all these kings grovel before him and this king of Sodom and take his things. And even in a godly man, you could think, well, maybe I deserve some of this. Maybe this is the way God wants to bless me. Didn't he promise me this land? And perhaps this is why he swore an oath before God that he would not take any of this because he knew this would be a temptation. Maybe it's also a lesson learned from his time in Egypt where he did receive some ill-gotten gain when Pharaoh dealt well with him and gave him things because of Sarai, his wife, and then sent him away with all of that stuff without taking it all back. Abram will not have any of that here. It's not that Abram is proud. It's not that he will have no help at all. He is allied with these other men. These Amorite men. But association with Sodom is a very clear affront to the name of his God. It would be very different than whatever his partnership with these other men Abram wants to receive the promises from God without sullying them by cozying up to wicked men or having other men claim that they're the ones who gave it to him. The Lord has brought Abram a great victory and he will not have God's glory shared with man, much less the king of Sodom. Abram has been promised much by God, but he is not here trying to illicitly grab onto these promises and make them happen for himself by gaining wealth, power, or land by any means necessary. He is concerned with proper worship of God and with the honor of God's name. God is holy, and Abram shows regard for that here in how he keeps the king of Sodom at bay. Abram is no pragmatist. He is waiting on God to make good on his promises in his way. It reminds me somewhat of David, who though he'd been promised the throne and even anointed, wouldn't lift his hand against Saul, even though Saul was the one trying to kill him. Abram is waiting upon the Lord. And he is careful not to give this wicked king of Sodom any cause for stealing the glory due to God or tarnishing Abram's reputation, which ultimately would bring a stain upon God. And so we see here that the wisdom, and I think the true piety of Abram, even over against the foolishness of his nephew Lot. We know not only we've already seen his foolishness to go to Sodom in the first place, 
But we also know come chapter 18 and 19, Lot returns after all this to dwell in Sodom again. There are many things that demand our attention and our time. But there is nothing greater for us to be concerned about than the worship of God and the honor of our God and the renown and the name of our Lord. And I don't just mean by that that we should be concerned to go to church. That is obviously part of it. But we are to be concerned with the glory of our God and his renown. We have concerns that go beyond food and drink and work and play. We are, as Christ said, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The concern of God's people is to see God's name lifted high and to be honored among men. Isaiah said in Isaiah 26, 8, your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. As Christians, we point sinners to the salvation that is found in Christ Jesus, who died and rose again so that sinners might be freely forgiven and justified before our holy God. And as those who believe this, we know that we have received so much grace and kindness from God Most High. And we know that He is holy. And the concern then for his people is that we would represent him well in this world, not giving cause for the wicked to revile him due to our hypocrisy and ungodliness. And this drives us then, it should drive us then to pray, even as Christ told us to pray, that we would be delivered from evil and from temptation. It drives us to self-conscious war against our flesh. For our concern is nothing less than the glory of God. May God grant that this concern for his name, his fame, would consume us. And it is lamentable at how little this concern rises above all the noise and busyness of our days. I, I, I doubt any of us here are convinced that we've absolutely nailed this and don't see the need for this to be renewed within us. That we might, even as Isaiah said, seek the Lord earnestly, in the night. To have the Lord's name and remembrance be the desire of our souls. That we might, when we're laying awake at night, pray, cry out to God in prayer. Put down the phone or whatever it is and, and do business with the Lord and pray and call out to Him. Abram was not perfect in his desires. We've seen this. We will see it again. But we do see a good example here again in chapter 14. 
He was not justified on the basis of his actions in chapter 14. He was not justified by his performance or his passion or his zeal or holiness. He was justified by faith in God's promise to send a redeemer. And we'll be reminded of this again at the beginning of chapter 15. And this is the same with us now. If you are painfully aware that you so often do not yearn for the Lord in the night, then confess that to God Pray that this would be the case and rejoice in the grace in which you stand. But we also must remember the goodness of being consumed by this. The goodness of yearning for the Lord. The goodness of desiring to see his name be known and be great. To be submitted to, to be believed on in the world. And we need to have our minds renewed in this. And we stand together under this word of the Lord. To be reminded that whatever it is that calls for our attention, and there are many things and they are good things, but nothing is greater than the love and the pursuit of God Most High, who has shown such kindness to you, and who will yet keep his promises to you. God is truly committed to his people and promises while his people are to be concerned with the worship and honor of their God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy of all praise and worship. You are worthy of our perfect obedience. You are worthy to have every thought of ours to be about you. You are worthy to have every action of ours to be done with your ultimate glory in mind. That we would want to do all that we do in a way that would please you. Father, we fall so very short of this. But it doesn't change the fact that that is good and right. So, Father, I pray that we would be able to understand that we stand in your grace. And not crushed by our sinfulness. And yet still joyfully and gladly confess where we fall short. And seek Righteousness. Father, I pray that it would be our, our greatest desire to know you more and to be more like Christ. Forgive us where we fall short of this. Forgive us where we become complacent about this. Father, renew our, our thinking in these areas. Strengthen us. Father, where we have just given in to sin in our lives, where we've just made... We've just believed that this area could never possibly be improved by you. So we just give up on it altogether. Father, I pray that you would remove that thinking from us. Father, help us to know that your law is good. Even as it is not the means of our redemption. Father, there is such a freedom here to stand in your grace And then to seek you. Father, we thank you for the promises of your gospel. That we are forgiven as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be an encouragement to us as we remember this now and always. We thank you for the promises we yet await. Of the day that we will stand glorified and perfected before you. Father, we don't see this with our eyes right now. But we believe. We believe that you are the same God 
You are the God of Abraham. And you will keep your promises and your word. Father, help us to live with eyes of faith. Lord, in all the ways that this could apply, I pray that you would just impress these things upon our hearts, however it is that we need them. So, Father, we thank you so much for your gracious dealings with us and for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.